This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, and for Terry Gross. One of the criticisms of the health care reform bill enacted last year is that it expanded coverage without doing enough to control rising health care costs. Our guest today, surgeon and journalist Atul Gawande, says there are hopeful signs that costs can be contained, not by cutting back, but by providing more intensive services to chronically ill patients who incur huge costs with long stays in hospital rooms and intensive care units. Gawande is a practicing surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He's also an associate professor at the Harvard School of Public Health and a staff writer for The New Yorker. His 2009 article on high health care costs in McAllen, Texas, was recommended by President Obama to members of his domestic policy staff. Gawande's piece in the current issue of The New Yorker on those who focus on patients with the highest medical costs is called The Hotspotters. He spoke to us from the Harvard Medical School. You may hear some extraneous noise in the background. Well, Atul Gawande, welcome back to Fresh Air. Let's talk about this physician, this young physician in Camden that you write about who has done some innovative things on cutting health care costs. And it, he really began by looking at where the hot spots of health care spending were in Camden. What did he do? It's a fascinating story. Jeff Brenner is this family physician who had been a, a citizen member of a police reform commission and uh, started looking at emergency room visits the way police look at crime assaults. He started asking, where are the people who have the most emergency room visits and hospital visits? And, um, and why is that happening? Just like you might look, a police chief might look at crime and say, what are the neighborhoods where the greatest amount of crime are and let's put our resources there. And so um, he collected data from emergency rooms in the three main hospitals in Camden, looked to see what's the trouble here. And what he found was that most of the costs were concentrated in just a handful of people. He found two city blocks, for example, that um, had about 1,000 people living in them, and they accounted for $200 million in health care costs over five years. He dug in a little further and saw that there was a uh, low-income housing project and, a, and a, a large nursing home there, and that you could imagine diving in to make changes. Um, he could imagine. He said, he said to himself, now, wait a minute. Our numbers are showing that 1% of the people using the Camden Health System accounted for 30% of the costs. 1% in Camden was about 1,000 people. That's about half the size of a, of a primary care physician's office panel, the number of patients they were seeing. And he said, I can do something about this. And so he decided to, uh, to try to attack uh, this problem, address the problem of costs, not because he cared so much about costs, but because he was convinced about another thing, which is the idea that the most expensive people in the city were likely getting the worst care. Yeah, why, why would and you think those that were getting all of those tests and all of that treatment were getting bad care? The story will vary from city to city. But in the city of Camden, it was a story of poverty. Um, Camden's a poor city. They have a, a lot of people who are in and out of insurance. They go to the emergency rooms as a primary place of care. And, and the sickest among them really do badly. When, when he tackled this, he decided to start just one by one taking care of the people who were in that top percentage of costs. And his patient number one that he encountered was a man who um, was, live, was spending basically more than six months out of the year in the hospital. He was 560 pounds, 
He had a alcohol and it turned out a, a cocaine addiction. He had congestive heart failure that left him disabled from his cardiac condition, bad diabetes. And when he caught up with him, he was in an intensive care unit with a tracheostomy and a feeding tube and a bad gallbladder infection. No, no, let, basically me, let me interrupt you if I can here because this is a fascinating piece of the story. This physician, Jeffrey Brenner, decides, I guess for his own reasons, he, he wants to take care of you know, the toughest patient almost he can find in Camden, the one who's getting terrible care, generating lots of costs. How does he do this? He goes to the doctor and, said, and says, give me your toughest case? Yeah. So, you know, the first way you do it is you try to look in the data and say, who are the most expensive and try to track them down. But you have to jump through all kinds of hoops. You have to get hospital permissions and legal permissions to pull the names out of Davis and approach them. So instead, he said, let me just go to the docs and say, who's your hardest, hardest, worst of the worst, as he put it, patients? And let me see them. And they were more than happy to hand over patients like this man. I mean, you know, this, this was a man who, you know, he's homeless living in a, in a welfare motel when he's discharged. You know, if you're in the hospital that much, you, you don't keep your home. He, he has drug problems. He doesn't turn up for his appointments. He's, uh, you know, and, and here's this doctor, Jeff Brenner, saying, I'll help you with these folks. In fact, I want to help take care of them, and I think we can do a great job. And, uh, and so they did. They would find his, their most difficult of the difficult, and then when he'd look back in the data, see where they are on the cost map, these were indeed some of the the most expensive patients in the city. So let's talk about this, this, this one gentleman. You said he tracked him down in the intensive care unit where he spends a lot of the year. Then what happens? So Jeff Brander described it as just being like a medical student for a while. He'd go and spend an hour a day just sitting and trying to figure out what the made the guy tick as he got better in the intensive care unit and started getting out into the regular floor of the hospital and then into a rehab facility. Um, they neared the point where he was going to be discharged. And the minute he goes out, you know, it's back to that world where there could be cocaine, there could be drugs, alcohol. He'd be homeless. He would lose, you know, any kind of basic care that would keep him going. And instead, he began providing that care. He got a uh, nurse practitioner in addition to himself who agreed to help pitch in. And she started visiting him every other day at home just to make sure his blood pressure was being checked and under control and he was doing the right things by his diabetes. He uh, got a social worker to work with him and, and um, make sure that you know he got the Medicaid he qualified for so he had steady insurance and, and some of the specialists he needed would actually see him. And probably the most important thing was simply um, working on him the way a primary care doctor works on people who have gotten into a rut in their lives. He said, you know, the, probably the most important thing that he did was just tried to care about him. And he worked on things like, how are we going to get you to stop smoking? How do we introduce value into your life again? He pushed him to rejoin the church that he used to go to, that he didn't go to anymore. He, it turned out he learned about him that he was a line cook um, in his former life before he got so sick and, and that he knew how to cook. And so, he, you know, he said, start cooking for yourself so that you're uh, getting back in the habits and uh, eating better. Uh, and slowly, it took three years, uh, but I spoke to the patient, and um, he's not had any more of those catastrophic intensive care unit stays. He has lost 220 pounds. Uh, when he falls down, he does not have to call 911 to, to get up. He is off of cocaine for uh, uh, three years, alcohol for two years, smoking for a year. Sometimes because of his heart failure, he does go back to the hospital, but it'll be a day or two at a time instead of weeks and weeks. And his costs have dropped dramatically while the quality of his care 
has been just turned completely around. Right, so, so part of it is kind of helping repair the social and moral infrastructure of his life. And then part of it is medical, right? I mean, you need people to make sure that he is getting his blood sugar tested regularly and that his medications are coordinated so that the medical care is more coordinated and then he's living a healthier lifestyle, which sounds terrific. Um, but it's we're not going to get doctors to volunteer to do this very often. What, what does it take to fund that kind of effort? Well, how did they do it in Camden? They actually expanded this to get more patients, right? Yeah. So, you know, it, it didn't work. I mean, Jeff Brenner is something of a saint. He, he uh, was ending up taking on patient after patient like this man, being very successful, um, lowering their costs by double-digit percentages, uh, improving the quality of care until the point he had, was, had more than 300 patients enrolled under wing with a team of a, the nurse practitioner and the social worker and, and other folks, got some temporary grants from foundations. But it was, it, you know, he, he struggles from uh, year to year about whether his organization can even survive. Um, what he uh, is recognizing is that in the current healthcare system, you're not paid to keep people healthy. Um, the main mechanism that the healthcare system manages through is um, you have a you have 20 minute office visits, maybe 30 minutes, uh, and you have emergency room visits. Those are the you know Americans make a billion of these kinds of visits a year, and that's how things get done. If you're a complex patient uh, with this kind of range of problems, it doesn't fit into that world. It needs a whole kind of a project manager, a whole team to take you under wing and, and see you through this course of illness. And, uh, and so what he's started creating is the system as it should be. So his organization has these 300 patients. Is he the primary care physician for these 300 folks? Uh, you no, know, he has not been. The, the, even his organization still hasn't had the funds to have a clinic uh, staff of doctors. They visit at home. They go to the patient's houses. They can uh, order tests and, and, uh, and get things squared away, and then they coordinate with their doctors because that's currently the way that they can do it. But I visited a, another uh, system that he's on the advisory board for in Atlantic City that has been able to create it. Um, and get actual money from the insurers to be able to pay for it. And it, it has been able to take it not just to 300 patients but to 1,200 patients who represent uh, the top 5% of uh, uh, costs for the casino workers in Atlantic City. So let's talk about the special care center in Atlantic City, which is a, a clinic set up specifically for the toughest patients, those that are chronically ill. Who established this and why? Yeah, this was just so interesting. <laughs> the um, the union for the casino workers um, uh, have a health fund that started this along with the hospital. And both of them were facing problems that the costs of their employees' health care had gone beyond what they could afford. For the unions, that nego they negotiate contracts that are often for total compensation, meaning uh, the wages plus the benefits. And since the workers vote every year on how that total compensation gets divvied up between wages and benefits, the workers have every year voted that they do not want to cut their health care benefits. But because those costs rise so much, they haven't seen a pay increase in years, apparently. Um, so they were desperate to have something that would actually bring those health care costs down without simply cutting them off for themselves. But interestingly, the hospital was also facing a similar problem 
that their own employees' health care costs were going up so high that they wanted a solution for it and put in with the union to create this really interesting experiment, which is kind of like what Jeff Brenner is producing, only doing it for um, the casino workers and hospital employees. And, and this is a clinic not for all of the casino workers and hospital employers, but those who are the, who are the sickest, right? Yeah, the design of this is really interesting. You cannot get into the clinic unless you are in the top 10% basically of the health care costs uh, that, the, uh, that their health funds have. Um, when you are enrolled in the clinic, there are no bills. The clinic is just paid a flat monthly fee for every patient they take care of for providing whatever services are needed to give them good service and, and uh, improving care. And they've paid this flat monthly fee by the benefit fund of the union and the hospital, right? That's correct. Okay. So one of the things that meant is that the whole staff that all of us have to have in medicine who handle insurance paperwork and that kind of thing disappeared. So that cost was lopped off the top. Um, then the second thing was that by having that kind of a – they call it a retainer-based payment, uh, if they aren't providing good service, the patients will walk they will simply leave and take their retainer <laughs> to somebody else, um, go back to their regular physicians. So that led them to focus intensely on service for these patients, service uh, to make sure that they are creating health goals for every patient, creating a staff that can help them achieve it. They have one person on staff, for example, whose sole goal, not sole goal, but, but they are fundamentally responsible for ensuring that um, there is a strategy for every patient in the clinic to quit smoking. And they've reduced smoking among their population of, um, especially among the, the heart disease and, and lung disease patients by uh, two-thirds, which is, you know, massively beyond what what uh, what you see in in uh, in general clinics uh, in the United States, and they've just tackled sort of problem after problem. How do I keep my cardiac patients on their main medications, their cholesterol lowering agents? How do I control their high blood pressure? They have a whole staff that, in fact, is invented for it. And they have this category of healthcare coaches who, if if I read this right, they are not recruited by, uh, among people with a medical background, right? Yeah, so the doctor that the health fund pulled in to run the site is uh, a doctor named Rashika Fernanda Pule. And Dr. Fernanda Pule ended up on a mission when he was a young physician uh, that went to the Dominican Republic and he saw community workers in action. I guess they called them promotoras. And they kind of coached people around maintaining their health. And he thought, we could do this here. And so he hired um, what I met as eight health coaches. Uh, and these are people whose job is, besides the doctor, to work uh, intensively, whether it's uh, uh, with uh, phone calls, visits to the home, email, whatever is the way to work with each of the key patients to, to, on how they're doing with their health goals. And those health coaches, you know, he interestingly emphasized they don't have to be from healthcare. He often wanted people who were from retail. One of his best health coaches was a uh, woman who worked at Dunkin' Donuts. Um, another worked as an uh, assistant manager in a McDonald's. And they knew how to provide service to people and, um, uh, and focus on getting results. So, so give us an example of what some of the services that a healthcare coach would provide and how that contributes both to better care and lower cost. There's the simple fact of 
every day the team meets, including the health coaches, to go through the list of all the patients being seen that day or during the week and, uh, and troubleshoot. Um, what are the problems? What are the issues? Uh, most of the patients only take a few seconds to run through, but, the, but they would be things like um, we caught on the computer system that this person didn't fill their blood pressure medication. Fine. I'll give them a call. Uh, so-and-so didn't turn up for their appointment. We'll We'll, uh, we'll go and deal with that. This person has some laboratory results that suggest he's getting into kidney failure. Okay, we'll, we'll uh, go and, – and he hasn't shown up for three appointments. Fine, we're going to go visit him at home and find out what the deal is. And then it goes to the point where the health coaches are working their way through with the patients. Okay, you have smoking or you have – obesity is a major issue or uh, your diabetes and your blood sugar control is, is where we really have to work. The doctors and the nurse practitioners um, set the major goals. They take care of the medical issues, but the additional issues includes social workers who can recognize this person is homeless and, and needs to get proper housing or has a problem with infestation with dust mites that are causing uh, asthma for the children who are in the, in the health plan. Uh, those kinds of things that normally we don't touch in medicine, or if we do, it's between visits that might occur once every five months, six months, they are able to jump in and try to drive those changes in behavior and in just making the health system work for them. It was interesting that you described them as these healthcare coaches as people who are used to saying yes. I mean, if you, whatever the patient needs, you figure out a way to make it happen. And and I'm sure that when, when people do get their meds checked and do have their prescription filled, they're much less likely to end up in the emergency room or the intensive care unit and thereby cut costs, and they will be healthier. On the other hand, this is a much more expensive set of services to provide than a doctor's office, which just kind of treats you rudely and says, you know, come in here and we'll get you out of here in 20 minutes. Have, have they done studies to show how the costs cut, uh, whether this is really saving money? Yeah. So they, the, the Union Health Fund, which is investing in this, um, then engaged an independent economist. And he uh, went and compared how these workers were doing to matched set of people who were in the Las Vegas Casino Workers Union and found that there were – even after taking into account the costs of providing all of this and the fact that these – uh, patients were getting more personal care. They were getting uh, – they're more likely to get their mammograms and their drugs – drug costs had gone up. That they had what appeared to be on average a, a 20 percent reduction, reduction in total costs, not bending the curve, not slightly making the rise lower, but actually slashing their costs. And this in the most difficult and the most expensive population. One of the points you made is that these services are intense. This is – outpatient intensive care in a sense. Um, the part of the strategy that works here is really borrowing from that crime world that you are deploying the resources to the, to the place with the hotspots, the, where the statistics indicate you have the people with the most need and designing medicine around that way, saying that, yes, we, we are going to provide these kinds of services, but only intensively to the place we need it. It's sort of like the intensive care unit within a hospital. It saves lives. It does good. And outside of the hospital, what, when you have a group of people focusing on 
keeping people out of the emergency room, keeping them healthy enough that they need the hospital much less than they used to, they are not only improving the care for people that are some of the sickest people in a, in a community, but also reducing the costs. This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies in for Terry Gross, back with Atul Gawande. He's a practicing surgeon, an associate professor at the Harvard School of Public Health, and a staff writer for The New Yorker. His latest piece on cutting medical costs and improving care is called The Hotspotters. We've talked about a couple of cases where people have innovated in particular practices with particular groups of patients and seem to have had some success by by bringing in extra services to the chronically ill and cutting costs and giving them better care. You also write about a, a company that does this on a macro level. Uh, I think it's called Verisk, which analyzes health data for companies that are looking to cut costs. Explain what they do. Yeah, it's a sort of vague name, isn't it? The, um, and, and they are in this nondescript office park in, on a sub, in a suburb of Boston, but they have um, contracts for um, with businesses mainly, businesses that have their own insurance, so these are usually medium-sized to larger businesses, and, uh, and they're all struggling with their health care costs. They all tend to try to contract with um, advisors on how to cut health care costs, and Verisk is just one of these advisors that are out there, and the typical way these advisors work is they look at their data and they tell them where to cut their benefits um, or how to change their benefits. So they might encourage them to um, increase the co-payments on brand name drugs or increase the co-payments on emergency room visits to try to drive behavioral change. But what this particular company does is they have a small platoon of doctors that also look through the data and try to see the medical story underneath. They look in the hotspots um, where – look at that 1 percent that accounts for 30 percent of the cost, the 5 percent that account for the 60 percent, and then begin trying to see the patterns. I sat down with Nathan Gunn, uh, uh, an internist who was one of these people at, at the company, and, uh, and, and watched him go through the data on one company where he, he zeroed in on the, their top user of emergency rooms, which was a 25-year-old uh, a woman, maybe she was secretary there or something like that, who'd had uh, 80 visits to doctors and to emergency rooms for headaches. And by peering in, he was able to see she was not on the right medication for migraine headaches. She would go to the emergency room. They'd give her a CT scan, make sure she had, didn't have a tumor or an aneurysm. They would give her a shot of morphine or some narcotic. And then, um, uh, and then that would be that. She was on a mild medication for migraines that clearly wasn't working. But she simply hadn't gotten good care for a, uh, a hard-to-treat migraine problem. And he could identify how to zero in and help that sort of person. I was really fascinated at one example that you cited of where they looked at a company that was trying to cut their health care costs. And so they, they increased co-pays for their employees with the idea that it would make them think twice about getting an unnecessary procedure, give them skin in the game, as, as the phrase goes, so that they, they have an investment in, in cutting costs. And that what they found was that for the most expensive patients, that actually increased their usage and increased the cost. Why? Yeah, so, you know, all the company knew was they had been cutting and cutting, uh, and that should have lowered their costs, and instead their costs continued to rise 10% a year, 10% a year, 10% a year. And so they got risk into the game to, to 
study what was happening. And diving deep into the data, what they saw was the company was really two companies. There were the uh, early retirees that were the predominantly and, and a subset of the early retirees were that 5% that accounted for 60% of the cost. And then there were the rest of the employees. And so those co-payments on the whole did. It reduced the number of office visits. It reduced the number of hospital visits people made. They didn't visit the emergency room quite as much. They used less drugs. And for the rest of the population, their costs were sort of tottering along without rising but not really falling. Uh, but then they were just climbing massively for this early retirement population. And when the doctors dug into the data, they found the story was that these were patients with chronic diseases like bad heart disease and high blood pressure. Um, some of them had severe mental illness. That was, a, that was also a concern. And they were going off their meds and then just having disasters happen. Um, one case being a, one that, that he, he looked at with me where um, – was a, a man who had stopped his cholesterol medication, had stopped taking regularly his heart medication, uh, given the copays and everything else. And the next time he's in the emergency room, it's with a massive heart attack. He's now with severe disability from congestive heart failure and over $80,000 in bills in the last year of his care. Because he couldn't spend a few dollars for medicine. <laughs> That's right. And so the, the, the policy had backfired on them. And what it made – you know, this whole way of thinking makes you recognize that the that, – that succeeding in controlling healthcare costs means succeeding in being able to figure out what you want to do for that top 5 percent of uh, people. You, you've highlighted a couple of really heartening cases of where people have given better, more consistent care to, to chronically ill patients, made them healthier and cut – costs. I want to look at the big picture of it here. To what extent does the Health Reform Act create meaningful incentives for driving down costs in these ways? Because, you know, you hear the criticism when the, when the bill was passed was that, eh, there's not really much here on cost control, a couple of pilot programs here and there. To what extent does the does health care reform encourage this kind of stuff? In, in many ways, the health care reform is gambling heavily on this kind of work. It has $10 billion in incentives for innovation centers to develop in communities that are focused on working to improve the coordination of care and, um, and reinvent the way that physicians are paid so that these kinds of organizations can start to form. The puzzle of it is the, whether these programs can scale successfully. This is the real test. So far, um, uh, it's sort of like charter schools. They are forming these really striking, successful programs. Uh, I, it, I think we've not paid enough attention to them and understood just what kind of opportunity they represent. Um, and that's part of the reason that uh, I went out to try to learn more about them and write about them. But the next question that they really face is, okay, you are able to do this for the casino workers program in Atlantic City. You're able to make it work um, at, at that scale. Now can you spread it to all of Atlantic City or all of Camden so that you're actually lowering an entire community's costs? What we need in health reform for cost control to actually happen is to have the first community or health plan that actually lowers health care costs, not 
you know, just bends the curve a little bit, but actually lowers healthcare costs. We've never had a community that does it, let alone one that does it by improving the quality of care. You know, if, if you have a system in which by providing better care, you spend a little more up front, but you cut costs overall, I mean, it would seem that would certainly be in the interests of the patients who get better care, of the employers who pay insurance premiums to fund that care, and, you know, the insurance companies who buy the care from the providers. Who are the people who are going to resist this? I mean, if you're cutting costs, that means you're cutting spending and somebody's ox is getting gored. Is there resistance here? You put your finger on it. The the people who will resist are the people who currently benefit from the current system. Um, there's a, I thought, a kind of telling story uh, in Atlantic City where the special care clinic there, as it's called, for the high-cost patients had gotten so good at reducing cardiology needs for the patients that the specialists, the cardiology specialists, started experiencing a reduction in the number of patients they were having uh, come from this, from this clinic. And um, and there a conflict developed. One patient they, that was an example that they told me about was um, a young woman who had had an inflammatory condition of the heart that w- that was able to be taken care of just with um, inflammatory medications when she was in her twenties. But she had been seeing a cardiologist um, every three months for uh, an EKG and uh, uh, every year for for an ultrasound of the heart for two decades, and they were able to recognize, you know, that cost is not really necessary. Uh, we're taking good care of you. You're doing really well, and we recommend you don't see the doctor. And the doctor then would call the patient at home and say, where are you? You have to come in. For, this, is, this is one of the reasons that you are alive. And the patient, of course, went back um, because who are you to believe? The conflict will mean that if you are successful in – being able to help keep people out of hospitals and help keep people healthy enough that that you're watching their health improve, then many of the same tests and specialty visits and operations uh, there in Atlantic City, the number of operations these patients needed went down 25%. Even as their health improved, their their quality of care improved, and their service ratings were, were through the roof. In Denmark, where a small set of these kinds of provisions were put in place. The number of hospitals have dropped by half over the last decade and a half. And um, for people here, imagining hospitals going out of business, imagining that um, if we are actually controlling costs, we're going to see some specialists start to think about going back into primary care. That would be the sign that we're actually uh, succeeding in attacking the healthcare cost problem. Well, Atul Gawande, it's been interesting. Thanks so much for joining us again. And thank you. Atul Gawande is a surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, an associate professor at the Harvard School of Public Health, and a staff writer for The New Yorker. His piece in the current issue is called The Hotspotters.